Okay, Lord willing, we are there. Yes, I can hear it. Praise God. Whoa, whoa. Sorry, guys. Getting caught. The cord was getting caught up here. Well, I don't even know what time it is. I don't have my phone or... Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> that clock keeps lying to me. It's the great deceiver. Um, it's good to be here. Um, to be here with you guys, to be able to worship God and worship God in praise and prayer and song, now in the Word. We're going to continue on here in uh, Matt, or excuse me, uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, we're going to pick up in uh, verse 10, and we'll see how far we can get. I think we can get through this. Um, as I was speaking last week, as we were going through the book of Isaiah, um, this is one of those places where um, one of the centralities of the truths of the Christian faith comes from this, uh, this area of Scripture, this portion where, where we can uh, see those promises of God. And uh, there's a lot of things that are... Um, uh, sometimes in, in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, there are some things that are um, stated by God that are not exactly 100% clear. And a lot of it is because of the language, the Hebrew. Uh, in a lot of instances, it doesn't translate very well into English. And um, this is one of those places. So when we go through that, we're going to cover that. But the one thing that I really want to uh, uh, focus on is, you know, what are the truths that are in here and who are they for? Are they for us or were they just for one time and can we trust them? And so as we read through this, um, you know, as we said last week, we're, we're learning that God hinted through uh, Isaiah to Ahaz. Remember the ungodly king? Remember all the things that he was he was guilty of just horrific, horrific things. Somebody who had turned his back against God and there was a price to be paid for turning away from God and he was definitely paying it. But you know, in the backdrop, when we see it, the way that we see that God is still dealing with um, Ahaz, we see the great compassion and the patience and the love of God for his people. Even when they're disobedient, even when they're not uh, doing what they're supposed to do. Um, how do we know this? Well, we'll, we'll see that. But we see that, that he's, uh, God is speaking still to Ahaz and he's saying all these things that are going to happen, but he's also at the same time telling them about the preservation of some. So there is comfort in, even in his disobedience. Um, and that's the great love of God. Ahaz, he was the ungodly king and um, that uh, though God would bring judgment upon them and upon him for their idolatry and their manifold sins against God. There was, I mean, just the one that sticks in my mind is the passing of his children, of his own sons through the fire. Part of the idolatry that was being practiced. And it wasn't, if you remember, Ahaz wasn't just, uh, he wasn't syncretizing with worship of God, he had essentially shut the temple down so the people couldn't even go worship. <clears throat> so great was his uh, sin. And even though there's all these manifold sins of the, of the king and of the people, that there would be a remnant. Remember the name of Isaiah's son here, um, earlier on in uh, chapter 7, um, and uh, how that that word 
his son that was going to go with him is uh, it means remnant. There's a remnant that God always has. Even when it seems like everybody's turning away from God, just like that story in the Old Testament of, of uh, Elijah when he was under pressure and he thought, man, I'm all alone. Woe is me. God says, nah, I got people. I got people. I got them hit away. I got them doing my thing. And so he always has that remnant uh, setting aside. Um, and so let's, uh, let's read this real quick, and then we'll go into a little time of prayer, and we will go from there. Starting in verse 10. And then the Lord, that's Yahweh, spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Now remember in the first one, one thing that I wanted to mention is, Remember when uh, and originally when he started talking through Isaiah, he was speaking through Isaiah, this thing. Now it's almost that picture of God speaking directly through to Ahaz. And he says, And the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord. Again, it's Yahweh there. Your Elohim, your God. Make it deep as Sheol and high as heaven. Um, so something that's not so easy to uh, just dismiss, okay? But Ahaz said in verse 12, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. I won't do it. Not going to do it. Um, then verse 13, he says, Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try? the patience of my God as well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it will come about in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, and on all the thorn bushes, and on all the watering places. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs. And it will also remove the beard. Now, it will come about in that day that the man, that a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. And it will happen that because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. 
People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the um, illumination of your word to us. Thank you that, uh, Lord, that in all these things, these, uh, these things that are written are witnesses to us of your holiness and your righteousness, of your justice and of your judgments. But it's also a witness of your compassion, your great love for your people, your patience and your kindness towards us as Carrie was speaking of earlier, that you make us so that we can enjoy all the beauty and the glory that is filling the earth at all times, whether it's bats at night watching them in wonder, watching stars, um, clouds move in and storms, sunsets and sunrises. And those are just the sights that we can see, sounds, not to mention the tastes and the smells. What a wonderful, gracious God and King that you are, that you've made us so that we can enjoy you now and then we can enjoy you forever. And that you've done these things, that you would be glorified in the earth. We thank you. We praise you. We pray that you would be glorified even now as we uh, open up more of your word and that you would be um, Lord with us. Your Holy Spirit would teach us, as your word says in uh, Isaiah 54 and 13 and John 6.45, you would teach us, Lord, in accordance with your knowledge and what you would have us know, and that we would receive it, Lord, and not distort it. Father, thank you. Thank you for the blessed God that you are. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. So again, here is these, uh, in these passages, we see that God again states in the midst of his declaration of judgment that he hints at something profound and deep. And I'm not talking about that that uh, sign that he's uh, um, asking Ahaz to uh, uh, ask on his behalf. But he's, he's hinting at this, this great, deep, profound thing, deep as Sheol and high as heaven, a, a child of promise that he's speaking of. A seed to bless the nations. And it's seed singular. That's what's amazing about it. It's not... An entire group of things. It's one seed, one person. And it's ancient, this seed that's spoken of. It's ancient and it's old as time itself. Um, a child of promise, a seed to bless the nations. Good news in the midst of tragic reports. So we continue and as part of the focus we will look at this. Uh, there's a controversial passage that we'll look at. Um, controversial for different reasons. Um, but we will look at it nonetheless. Here in Isaiah 10, it begins, and then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, uh, again saying, and, and um, where he says here that uh, he's speaking to Ahaz directly. God doesn't have to do that. And that shows part of his compassion and his patience. Even with this, this upstart, Ahaz, he's, uh, he's a pretty bad dude. He's not a guy to look up to. He's not a guy to uh, emulate. And yet, that was one of the things that, uh, unfortunately, um, when we don't have God, 
as our CPU, our central point of understanding and our central point of unity. When we don't have God as that, we can put other people on on the shelves. And uh, a lot of times, sometimes it's a leader. Um, Sometimes it's, uh, you know, uh, we have a whole, How I don't even know how long that show has been on uh, American Idol and all these different idol shows around the world where people literally make idols of these people. They literally do that. I mean, that's the title of the, the, of the deal. And we can be distracted. And God doesn't have to, as I've said before, um, God doesn't have to speak directly to Ahaz, but He does. And I think that shows His compassion and His care for His people. And He says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. And I want you to take note of that that he still considers God, God still considers himself the God of Ahab. He doesn't have to. But because of what God has already spoken, and because God holds his word even above his name, that this is an important thing to do. Um, He speaks, you'll see when when God responds here, he's going to speak to the house of David. He's got someone else in mind, which is kind of a hint of what he's doing here. Even though Ahaz is this wicked king, he remembers his promises to David, the king who was a king and a man after God's own heart. And so he says, ask ask for a sign for yourself from Yahweh, your Elohim. He says, make it deep as Sheol and high as heaven. That's an important thing to grasp. Um, because he's, he's asking, if you remember from, uh, if you remember, I don't know how many of you would remember the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was, uh, um, had the prophet of his time come to him and said, hey, get your stuff together. Get your house in order, uh, Hezekiah, because the Lord has spoken. And this is the deal. You're going to die. Just like that. Just boom. Get your stuff together. And of course, Hezekiah, his response was to go to the temple and to pour out his heart to God. And he cried out to God. And God, in his mercy and in his kindness, he said, "Uh, um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to extend your life another 15 years. That would be a pretty good deal. Considering you're just announced, you're going to die like real quick. And then, hey, I'm giving you another 15 years. And Hezekiah, um, there's a contrast here that I want to draw. Hezekiah said, well, how can I know that this is going to be for sure a sure thing? In his doubt. Because he said, you know, God just told me I'm going to die. Now he's going to tell me, now he's telling me I got 15 more years. And remember, it was the same kind of thing. God said, well, ask, ask for something. And, uh, and of course, it was the story of the stair, the stairwell, and the sun, the shadow. Normally, as the sun moved, it would go one direction. But he said, well, if you're God, you can make it go the other, other direction. And that's exactly what took place. The impossible, the, the, the thing that seems to break all physical, natural law, happened. And he was convinced. It didn't work out as great as it could have in the end because he kind of forgot all that just as 
we have want to do. You know, this last uh, Tuesday, I was on the on the radio, and we were talking about miracles, and and we talked about how uh, you know in our fallen nature um, that we um, we sometimes we we have this inability to really fully grasp and appreciate all that God does for us. We just are so mindful of this world and our reality that we often forget all the little things and, and sometimes the real big things that God does in our lives. And we lose sight of that and we lose track of that and we're not appreciative of those things. Remember the 40 years that they wandered because of their disobedience and their idolatry, the, the people of Israel. And how uh, um, when we were talking about this, uh, Heather and I, that uh, they wandered there and they their, their clothes didn't wear out. You know how many guys would just love that for 40 years? You could wear the same T-shirt, your favorite one, drives you women crazy. And the shoes, women would love this. Your shoes never wear out. Your favorite pair of shoes never wear out. Amazing things. and. God fed them every single day. They never went without. And they were grumblers. We, we don't appreciate all the things that God does. And so that, that's one of the things that, that the fallenness of man has um, created in us, that seemingly inability to, uh, to grasp how good God truly is. And so God here, um, speaking to Ahaz, says, ask for a sign from the Lord. Your God, make it deep as Sheol and high as heaven. Don't make it something that's simple. Make it something that is difficult, that you can't just dismiss. And Ahaz's response, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Um, that is not, uh, you don't notice here that God is now speaking directly to Ahaz, who has, uh, in essence, his utterly rejected his God. Remember all the things that he was guilty of. The fact that he closed off the temple or walled it off. Um, the God of Israel through the prophet, he, he speaks for, to him and says, um, ask for a sign. The word sign here is, uh, I know you guys are going to think that I'm making this up, but it's just, the word is oath. Oath, not oath, oath. And it is the word, it just it simply means a signal a distinguishing mark, a banner, a remembrance, a miraculous sign. God says, ask for this. Ask for a miraculous sign. Something that's not normative. Something that's out of the ordinary. Something that's extraordinary. Um, and then he says, make it deep. Amach. Amach is the word. It's to be deep or to be profound, to make deep. Um, it's something that is uh, not just simple and surface level stuff. Think about it. Ask for something that's impossible. Is what he's saying. And this is one of the, the you know, the, in uh, um, Ahaz's response: "I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord." Um, then uh, God responds in verse thirteen and says, "Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience?" Of men that you will now try the patience of my God as well. So Ahaz's refusal to ask may seem wise at first glance and first reading, uh, but I think that there was something more going on here. 
Um, there was this refusal. Um, and maybe he was just trying to save his hide. I don't know for sure. Um, we're not told, but for whatever reason, he was unwilling to ask God. And I think this is one of those places where he wouldn't have been testing God if he would have asked. He would have just been being obedient. But he couldn't. In his rebellion, he couldn't even be obedient to ask for a sign. So God says, fine. You're not going to ask for a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. And it is deep as Sheol, and it is as high as heaven. It's as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. Remember what he had told um, in chapter 6, what God had told and when he called Isaiah. Remember uh, Isaiah, he sees this vision and he's saying, here I am, Lord, send me, I'll do it. And remember the, the response of God when he said that? He says, here I am, send me, in verse 9 of chapter 6. And God says to him, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people um, insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. This sign that God was speaking of I think it served two purposes. It was going to serve in a way, it was going to serve an immediate, fairly immediate um, fulfillment. But I think this is one of those places that has a secondary future fulfillment. And we know what that is. In December, we all celebrate it. This is a big thing that you'll see it everywhere on Facebook, on signs on the road. You'll see it everywhere. Um, and so God was giving this sign, and this sign was deep. Here is um, what it says. He says, therefore, in verse 14, and this one's pretty easy to remember for Christmas because it's 7, 14. Chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, right? It goes along in math because two sevens is 14. He says, therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. This is one of the most central verses for us in the Christian church. For what it is that we believe and why we believe it. Um, it's concerning the incarnation of Jesus of which Paul writes. We've been going through Philippians, and in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul writes this about this, uh, this Jesus. He says in uh, verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. The idea there that preexistent to the, uh, before the heavens and the earth were made, before anything was made, he was already existing. Before there was anything made, he was part of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. He was in eternity being God, busy being God, doing whatever God does before there was a heavens and an earth. 
He was always continually in that form. And Paul recognizes this. He says, um, this attitude who was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's just the way that he was. And then he says, he, he not only did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men. In another place, Paul says, the likeness of sinful flesh. So he looked like you and I in our sinfulness. But he was not sinful at all. Here he was existing in all eternity in the form of God. And then he took on this other nature of humanity, man. The second nature that only he possesses in the way that he does. As being 100% man, 100% Deity. Don't fully understand or grasp that. We just know that that's the way that it is. And he says, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name or at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's to the glory of God the Father that we bow to Him. And so this proclamation, this sign that He's going to give, is the idea of the virgin that was going to be with child. She was going to be found with child. But she wasn't impregnated by any man. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, who existed in the form of God, in the incarnation comes and takes on a body of flesh, like you and I. And this is the, the, uh, um, the sign that God is speaking of. And I think he could have used the word that is uh, um, the word for virgin in this passage. But because of what he has said in the prior chapter, to make their ears dull, to make their hearts insensitive, so that they can't see, he's obscuring it. What could what he could have made plain and simple, he's obscured it. Because this word that is here, this is the controversy. It is the word alma, alma, and it means maiden. And here's the deal. Here's as Christians, we should understand that what world was a maiden in that time in the in the Hebrew life, in the life of the Jews. She was a young, um, some woman, young woman who was uh, almost at, at marrying age, and she had never known a man. That was part of the law, right? Because when a man took a wife, there was even a test if there was any question that they would do in order to prove it. And so he could have used the word that is specifically meant as a virgin that is used over 38 times in the Old Testament as virgin. But instead he uses the word Alma, which means maiden. The controversy is a lot of um, people who are apostates, people who are non-believers, people who are pagans, people who hate God, 
and haters of God and anything of God, they say, well, he's not really talking about a virgin giving birth, being with child. See, he's talking about a young maiden. But when you look at it, um, and I want to look at it as uh, as um, how Matthew saw it, and I want to look at there in a minute, um, and I want to read this notation. It says, the Hebrew word occurs seven times in the Old Testament, the word Alma. I think I put in your uh, bulletin, I think I put all the seven different places where you can find that word and where it's associated with and in the context that it's in. It means a young woman of marriageable age, normally or expectantly a virgin, right? That's what it was supposed to be. Um, so one of the first places that you do see it used is, is in Genesis 24, 43. And in that is you have the story of, um, I believe it's uh, um, Isaac. And the, 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 the message that he gives to uh, um, his servant, um, who's to go and find his, I don't know, it's one of the members of his family, Rachel. And he doesn't know it's that Rachel yet. He says, this is, this is what God, you know, remember the um, Eliezer, I think it was his name, and he, he's... Praying to God and says, okay, Lord, I don't know what I'm looking for, who I'm looking for. Here's the deal. He asked for a sign. Yeah. And this was a sign in order to bring a bride to the son. And he specifically says, the one that comes out, meets and greets me, and says, hey, uh, let your camels drink right here. In fact, let me do this. So the one that does that, yeah, 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 she was working, she was ready to work. He says, the one that comes out and does that, um, let that be the one. God listens, God hears. And that's exactly what happened. And he was just blown away. It's like, wow, it happened exactly like I asked. And that's the first time we see that in this, this young a maiden that came out, she was a virgin. That was the expectant um, bride. That's what it was supposed to be. And when we look at how Matthew thought about this, um, it's important. Um, because in Matthew, in Matthew chapter, let me find my notation here. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. We know the story. I'll let you guys read that in, in the beginning of chapter 1. We won't go through all the begats. But here in uh, 21, it says, uh, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So here his name is being called specifically Yeshua, Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. He's a deliverer. He's a redeemer. He's a reconciler. And then in verse 22, and it says, Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child 
and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated means God with us. This is important to grasp because despite what the unbeliever, what the God-hater, what the sinful man might say in trying to um, trying to unshackle himself from the judgment of God and finding reasons, clever reasons of why they don't want to believe, who should we believe? Somebody that is around today that thinks himself brilliant and smart and that's, uh, uh, um, that's hates God? Or should we believe an eyewitness? Somebody who was there who saw Jesus. Somebody who has spent the, that three years with them in that ministry of Jesus. Somebody who heard the words, who heard the story, who knew it. Somebody who watched all the miracles and the signs that he did. Who heard the words that Jesus spoke. Who witnessed them with his eyes who at the end of that ministry saw him falsely accused, saw him beaten and mocked and spit upon, saw him ultimately hung there on a cross. And for a moment the despair hung over him like a dark, dark cloud. But three days on the third day, He saw with his own eyes a risen Christ. He witnessed the fact that Christ had risen. He saw that this same Jesus was the very one that was spoken of. I think that we would do well to believe an eyewitness who was there, who understood these things. And that's why in the power of the Holy Spirit, under his influence and with the illumination of the Holy Spirit within Matthew, Levi, as he's called. When he wrote this, he attributed to this verse. He says, this is what God spoke. And it wasn't just his opinion. He was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that, that he was one of those who was there. And so should we believe the eyewitness at that time? Or should we believe the people now who come up with reasons why it doesn't mean what it means? I believe it was obscured then to the people, to Ahaz, and it's obscured to the non-believer. So they cannot, because they do not receive the things of the Spirit, because the things of the Spirit can only be spiritually discerned. They cannot be understood, comprehended by the natural man, because the natural man does not receive it. He thinks it's foolishness. So that's an important thing to understand and to grasp as we go through this and see this, this what was happening, this unfolding and this sign that God had spoken himself that he would bring. So God is himself saying, this is the sign that I'm going to do. Um, And in uh, uh, going on in the the notation here, the word for, for virgin, the actual word. Here he uses the word alma, a virgin, a young woman, a marriageable age, a maid, newly married. There is no instance where it can be proved that this word designates a young woman who is not a virgin. And that's what we need to understand. There is no place in Scripture, there's no instance 
where it can be proved that this word, Alma, designates a young woman who is not a virgin. In every place that it is used, the implication is it's a young, pure woman. Okay? So God with us, the name Emmanuel, this is the name that was going to be given to him. That's the name that conveys God's promises to save, to bless, and protect his children. The identity of the virgin and the child has been, and this is going back to this, uh, um, this passage, um, the identity of the virgin and the child has been the subject of considerable discussion. Three major views have been proposed. First, some, especially Jews of the second century, understood the prophecy to mean Ahaz's wife and her child. Um, Hezekiah. But, as Jerome, who was in the fourth, uh, third, or fifth century, pointed out, Hezekiah was already born. Um, second, others identify the woman as Isaiah's wife or a woman betrothed to him. Um, the second probably would not be possible because he already has a son. So unless his wife had died or had another son, there's no way she could be a virgin is the idea. Okay. Um, the child is then Isaiah's son, um, and we're going to spend some time with this guy, um, this cool name. It's one of the cooler names in the Bible. Macher Shalal Hashbaz. That's a cool name. Macher Shalal Hashbaz. This interpretation is questionable. The Hebrew term translated virgin would not normally be used for a woman who was already a mother. And remember in, in uh, early on in chapter 7, in uh, 7.3, the name of Isaiah's son was She'er Jashub. That's the word for remnant. A remnant will come. Um, if someone engaged to the prophet is meant, it becomes necessary to assume that his first wife had died. These are the notations of the scholars who put some time and thought into this. It says also the interpretation requires that the child have contradictory names. God is with us, Emmanuel, and the spoil speeds and pray, the prey hastens. Maharshalal Hashbaz. Two different names. It's like that doesn't seem to fit. Though not impossible, it seems unlikely. Um, finally, the child's tradition, uh, the child. Uh, diet, his diet of curds and honey suggests that he would grow up after Judah's destruction. And you can notate that in uh, verse 15. It says a tradition suggests a third interpretation. And that's the one we pretty much hold to. Um, the third tradition, uh, the third interpretation is identifying the child as the Messiah, the one who was promised to come. And this person would be divine in personage, whose birth is above nature. It equates the child named Emmanuel with a child possessing God's titles in, nine, in uh, Isaiah 9.6 and with the branch in, of uh, chapter 11. Again, those referring to uh, Christmas time passages that we're so familiar with at that time. And of course, according to Matthew, the virgin is Mary. And the child is Jesus. We see that in Matthew, and we just read that in Matthew 1, uh, 22 and 23. In verse 16, the birth seems nevertheless to be imminent, 
Perhaps the prophecy is a partial fulfillment in the birth of Isaiah's son, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. I like saying that. Um, while the definitive fulfillment awaits for the birth of Jesus, who secures God's throne forever. It's the idea of God with or in the midst of His people. It's not just mentioned here, by the way. This is not the only time that this is spoken of. And I love that about our God. Is that He over and over again says that He will be in our midst. Those who are His people, He will be there with us. He doesn't leave us to ourselves or to our own devices. In Zephaniah, you haven't heard that name in a while. In Zephaniah 3, verses 15 through 17. I'll give you a second to find that. Zephaniah 3, it's in the Old Testament. For those who don't know, that's not a prophet that we, you know, immediately just jumps off our lips and off our uh, brains. So in Zephaniah 3.15, this is what it, uh, through 17, this is how it reads. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, or this in this case, Adonai, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. Why? Because he's Emmanuel. He's in your midst. He's amongst you. In that day, it will be said uh, to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord Adonai, your Elohim, is in your midst. Why should we not be afeared? We shouldn't be afeared because He's a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That's why you needn't, you needn't fear. That's why you don't need to be afraid. Not only is in our midst, He loves us. He loves us. And if you've been born again, I want you to be able to say that. I want you to practice that throughout the week. God loves me. It's not being arrogant. It's not being boastful. It's being mindful of the fact that God shouldn't love any one of us. Yet He does. If you can say that, God loves me. You can know that. God loves me. And you don't have to be afraid of anything. You needn't be afraid because He's a victorious warrior in your midst. He exalts over you with joy. He exalts over us? What? That's crazy talk. God, the God of all the universe? That's what it says. He exalts over His people with joy. And he will be quiet in his love. And he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That's what it says in Zephaniah. And all the way back in Genesis 24, 23, that's, that's where the, uh, these words are, are, are being, um, the word virgin can be found. But the idea that God is in our midst, that is the one thing that continues. And we'll see that in the New Testament as well. Continuing on here. Um, so this, for the word that is the actual word that could have been used is the word Beth, Bethulah. Bethulah. 
And it literally means virgin. It's used 50 times in the Old Testament, 38 of which of those times is used to mean and to designate the idea of this is a virgin that is being spoken of. He didn't. Why? Because I believe what it says in chapter 6, to go tell the people to keep on listening, but do not proceed. He didn't make it utterly clear to them. And that's frustrating. It's frustrating for us. It's frustrating when we don't understand some of these things and don't spend the time to look and dig these things out. It's not meant to confuse, but it's meant to God to speak as He does. And even Jesus did this. He used these same things in parables. And remember, in almost every single one of those instances of parables, the disciples, once they were all, you know, the crowds, away from the crowds, they're alone, one-on-one with Jesus, then they would go to Him and, tell us about, what, what were you talking about? You said stuff, but we didn't, what are you talking about? Remember, it took Jesus to explain to them, and many times, he'd, oh, you slow of learning and slow to believe. He would he would have to explain it to them. Why? And this is important to grasp. When we understand these things, it's because God is doing what he said he would in Isaiah 54, 13. In John 6, 45. He's teaching us those who are his. Those who are not his, they'll remain in the dark. They'll stumble around in the gray, not knowing what what is this talking about? I don't understand. And I can't tell you how many unbelievers that I've talked to that say, I've read the Bible. I don't get it. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. Like I know, and it can't. But keep reading. Keep reading. In fact, take a step of faith and ask God, the God that is being represented in the Bible, and take a step and say, hey, I want to know this. Please show me. It has to be spiritually understood. So this is um, part of what's going on, I believe, here, is that, uh, you know, instead of referring directly to a virgin, he's, he's used this other word to keep them guessing, and, and uh, they really didn't fully grasp all the things that were going on. So moving on to uh, um, chapter 15 of this person, that's this son that will be born, the son who will be given. Um, that's later. That'll come later. It says, and she will call his name Emmanuel. By the way, in, uh, if we remember in uh, early in uh, Genesis, early on after the fall, that's where it's hinted at the very first time. The idea of the woman that would have this seed and her seed would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise its heel. The first time that that's, that's a proto-evangelium, the very first hint of this virgin birth because the woman doesn't carry the seed. And so it's very specific language that God is using to explain what he's doing and what he's going to do. So in verse 15, concerning this son that will be born from this virgin, um, who will be named Emmanuel. And of course, in Matthew, Matthew records for us that the angel told Mary, um, you're the name of Jesus. 
Jesus. That's very specific. God saved. Essentially is what his name means. And he came to what? To save his people. From what? Their sins. Only he can do that. Somebody's going to have to help me with time because I have no way of keeping track. <laughs> okay, good. All right. We'll, we'll continue on. It says here in verse 15, He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. And in verse 16, he says, For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose kings, uh, the two kings you dread, will be forsaken. Um, this is one of those places where the Bible doesn't really talk about an age of accountability in so many terms, you know, in specific terms like that. But if there is any place like that, this would probably be about one of the few places where we do see this kind of idea where um, there is this, uh, we're sinful in our nature, we're sinful to our core on conception. On conception day, we're sinful, our nature. It's just enmeshed with this. It's part of our DNA. But there is also this, this uh, seemingly what, what this is saying. He will eat curds and honey at a time. Um, he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. That's older. But before the boy will know enough to, to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Um, so there's this kind of idea that there might be this... Uh, Tainted, I'll call it tainted innocence that children have. Because if any of us have children, we know they're definitely not innocent. They're not angels. I got grandkids and love my grandkids to death. They're not angels. They're not perfect. In fact, they can be little hellions at times. And, uh, and that's the way that we are. But there's seemingly this, this time of where they're not able to fully grasp or understand the concepts. And we know that when we're teaching our kids because they're profound in many ways, the way that they grasp things, some of them more than others. And in other ways, it takes a while before they get to that, being able to conceptualize good and evil. So there's that that's going on here. Um, the curds and the honey, it's an interesting thing. This is not a typical food for, in, for infants. Uh, but points to a time when people will have to live off of unworked fields. Because remember, as he's saying, what used to be cultivated is now going to be full of what? Thorns, briars. So they're going to have to be dependent on something else. And uh, it'll be, it points to a time when people will have to live off of the unworked fields and the child is identified with the remnant. That's important. So it's somebody that's going to come along, and when he knows how to refuse evil, the self-indulgence made the, the failed leadership of Israel insensitive to social and spiritual values. But this diet will sensitize Christ to the work of the Lord. In, uh, it's, we're hinted at this in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42. This is what it says. It says, Behold my servant, whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. I love this because it talks about that compassion that Jesus has. That love that he sees the wounded and he doesn't further wound. He doesn't further damage. He doesn't further their uh, um, discomfort. But he's the salve, the lotion, the, the ointment of our healing. And so in verse 16, he says, Before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread. Um, this verse seems to mean that before the time required for a child to become accountable, which in the Jewish understanding, about 12 years old. Because remember at 13, they do what? Bar mitzvah. Right? And I can't remember what the girl's uh, name for the girl's thing was. But this is the oh, bat mitzvah. Yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of the the, the idea that's uh, being put forth here, and and uh, Pika and Ramalia will both be defeated. These two kings that he dreaded, um, in his in this understanding, the child will point primarily to Isaiah's son and secondarily to Christ. That's why there's a first fulfillment and then there's a secondary fulfillment, seemingly in this, pointing to the uh, virgin birth of Christ. In verses 17 and 18, the Lord will bring on you and your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Um, and in 18, and it will come about in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt. Remember, that was one of the ten plagues that God brought about on them um, there in Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. Um, this, these verses here, um, in that day, the fall of Damascus of Samaria and the devastation of Judah, um, which are uh, foretastes, they're only foretastes of the events of the last judgment. It's going to be like that towards the end. The fly and the bee, the insects swarm in great numbers, like the hordes of invaders. They will prefer the infestations of flies and bees to that of these vicious, deadly, and exacting instruments of judgments of God that will soon come as spoken by God. Um, they will, in verse 19, they will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, and on the thorn bushes. And on all the watering places. One of the things to keep in mind is the steep ravines and these cliffs. They were some of the traditional hiding places. They're some of the places where you could go to get away from this. Get some relief from all this doom and gloom. He says, no, no, no. They're, they're going to be there already. There's nowhere to go is the idea. This is going to happen. Deal with it. It's going to happen. And it's sad when you think about it. The rebellion, this is what God has to do. When He judges, He judges justly. So that's the idea where they're, man, 
I'd rather have the infestations of flies and bees than have to deal with these guys. But that's the way that it's going to be. Um, in verse 21 and... Uh, oh, uh, verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates. He's bringing those people in. They're going to come at His request. That is, with the king of Assyria. Remember, Ahaz had tried to make a um, compact with Assyria. Talked about that a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago. What happened? Assyria turned, right? They did what would be expected. You hire a snake to do a job. You expect a snake to be a snake. They're going to be a snake. And that's exactly what took place here. So Assyria is going to come against them. The head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. What is this speaking of? Why is he talking in such terms? Think about it. Um, any of you know any runners? Or watch any track and field? Or watch swimmers? What do they do? They shave everything that they can. Why? To be able to cut through quicker, faster, leaner. This is the idea. They're coming. They're coming fast. They're going to be swift. They're going to be fast. They're going to be murderous. They're going to do what they're going to do. And you can't do anything to stop them. That's the idea. God is calling them for this purpose. He's calling them to be His hammer. To hammer them. That's the idea of this. The shaving the head is a sign of mourning as well. And a way of humiliating conquered enemies. So they would do this to the people. One of the most important things for Jewish men is the beard. And when somebody else shaves you against your will, one of the ultimate forms of shame for a man in that culture. Shaving your head and all that. Because the shaving of the head was a sign of what? Harlotry, right? For women? And it's the same idea here. They're, they're trying to humiliate them. And that's what they would do. Ahaz had hired Assyria to help against uh, Syria and Samaria, but the Lord would use Assyria to humiliate Israel instead. And before you think, man, God seems to be really tough here. He seems to be really judgmental. Well, it's because God is just. In verse 21 and 22, Now in that day a man may keep Alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. And because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. It's not your natural food. Because remember, they were able to cultivate the land and they were able to grow whatever they needed. And it also is going to be speaking of something else too. Um, continuing on. And because of the abundance of milk produced, he will eat curds. And for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. As far as the abundance go, in verse 22, the land will be so depopulated that this limited food will seem abundant. Imagine that. Um, the remnant, at least, will have something to eat. Cruising on uh, to verse 23 through 25, and it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines, valued at a thousand shekels of silver, will become briars and thorns. People will come 
there with bows and arrows, because all the land will be briars and thorns. And and for all the hills which used to be cultivated, which is what I was speaking about a minute ago, with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. They will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. The cultivated land will return to weeds, barely fit for grazing. The judgment will come, and in time, many of those prophecies will be lived out by the people of that time. What God has spoken will come to pass. And I love that about our sovereign God. Whatever He says, for those of us who are His, who trust in Him, that's good stuff. Sometimes it's tough stuff. You know, sometimes it's tough stuff. Tough thing that we have to endure. Sometimes it's, you're going to have to decide, stand for me in the midst of persecution, in the midst of false accusations, in the midst of condemnation of the world. The world's going to hate you because of me. This is just part of what he is going to do. These are part of the things that happen with those who love God. Um, but we don't have to dread. And we have hope. The midst, the God, the fact that God is in the midst of us um, is a wonderful, glorious thing. Because that is His promise. From the Old Testament through the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're told, remember what, what uh, um, you know, as... As believers, how should we respond to these things? Knowing that God is the God of judgment and the God who is just. Well, remember Martha's response in John chapter 11. We should believe that that the fact of the virgin birth is true. They had that understanding. They believed that. How do we know? Well, we know that Martha... Believe this. How do we know that? In John chapter 11, verses 20 through 27, the death of Lazarus. Martha, in verse 20, says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would have not died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I love the way it's written here. It's very matter of fact. Boom. Your brother's going to rise again. Mary said to him, I know that he will rise again in the, re- on, uh, in the resurrection on the last day. Was that what Jesus was talking about? Nah. <laughs> he had something. He had a sign that was bigger than that. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And in that great paradox, the the paradox of the Christian life, and I got a chance to speak this when I was um, speaking at my uncle's uh, funeral or his celebration. And uh, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. This is like, seems like a contradiction. (laughs) Like what? That doesn't make sense. How are you going to live if you're dead? 
Well, let's read it again. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Say, what? It's crazy talk. Jesus, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. You see, the great promise is that resurrection. And in the gospel, we have, and in this story of Lazarus, he was dead and he was going to come to life. It's the very picture of salvation. It's the picture of being dead in our trespasses and sin. It's the picture of being dead to God spiritually because that's what we are. Not in the uh, Jewish or the Italian, no, you're dead to me. But we're spiritually dead. And like Lazarus, where he's there in the tomb, he's dead, he's been dead for four days. As the King James says, surely now he stinketh. It stinks in there. It's, he's dead. He's decaying. He's, he's dead. Jesus simply says, remove the stone. And then he says those words. Lazarus, come forth. Bam. The guy gets up. He's bound. And I love those words. Unbind him. Take those death clothes off. Give him clothes, something new to be clothed in. And in the gospel, that's his righteousness. He takes the dead person, brings him to life. He calls us by name and he calls us to come forth out of the dead. And that's what the gospel is really all about. That's why there's going to be a virgin who's going to give birth to a son. In that story, let's continue on what she said here. It says, that the one who believes in me... Uh, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That takes a lot of faith. Or it takes a little faith. Because that's all you need. It's enough faith to say, you know, I don't know why. And I remember when we would share the gospel out there at the fair. And we would ask people specific questions. And we would, do you believe this? They weren't going to the fair to get saved. They weren't going there to hear the gospel. They weren't going there to know about Jesus. But somehow, some way, God would work in such a way that they would say, um, I do, I do believe that. You'd ask them why. They'd say, I don't know, I just do. And that's the right answer. Just do, because it's by faith. And he says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed. Now listen, this is what she has understood. This is what she was taught. This is what she had grasped. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, Christos, Messiah. You are the Messiah. Huios Theon in the Greek. Son of God. Even he who comes into the world. The idea of the incarnation wasn't so foreign to them, unlike we're told. This woman believed it. She believed that this was going to happen, that God, the Creator, was going to step into His own creation and be the one who would provide life for His people. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 19-21, through 21, Jesus' words Himself, He says, Again I say to you that if... 
two or, uh, of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. God with us. God in our midst. Emmanuel. And lastly here where it says in the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter eight, uh, 28 verses 16 through 20. It reads as following. This is after the resurrection. This is the same Matthew. Who understood that what Isaiah had spoken of. Was indeed the fulfillment of Jesus coming incarnate. Born of the Virgin Mary. And in the Great Commission, it reads as following, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Rightly so. They worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How should we think of God? Is God with us? Why? It says right here, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. How we long as Christians to have that our reality. How I long not to not be a person of faith anymore, a person of hope, but yet He is our hope. How we long for that to be our reality, our life, our existence, to be in the presence of the King, the mighty warrior, the one who loves us quietly, the one who exalts over us with joy. That is the reality of how we should think about these things and the fact that the incarnation did take we have an eyewitness. We have more than one eyewitness. We have many. And some of them wrote and gave us this so that we can know that when Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, He is. Jesus doesn't lie. He's no liar. We can understand that. We can grasp that. We can believe that and we can know that. This is our confidence. The Word of God. For it is written. And the fact that Jesus came. Incarnate. 100% deity. God. 100% man. Lived that perfect life. And ultimately died on that cross for our sins. To take them away. All of them. All of them. Once for all. And to be buried. To be risen again. Because Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ has risen. That's our confidence. Because it's written. Because it says so. For He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we should understand. Because it is written, we can know it. We can proclaim it. We can know that God loves us. Practice that during the week, would you? God loves me. Sometimes it's hard for us to say that. 
That's a reality. God loves us. Practice that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for these words that are written, that are established, that have witnesses. We thank you, Lord, for these things so that we may know that our sins are forgiven. Thank you for the assurance that we have, not because of our faith, but because of what Jesus has done, for it is written. Thank you, Lord, that he was buried that he died and took that sin with him to the grave, and that he rose again on the third day, that he is risen, that he is at your right hand. And one day we will see him come again in the clouds and with the clouds and with those who have gone before. Thank you for the truth. If we believe in him, even if we die, yet shall we live. Hallelujah. Thank you for all these promises, Lord. Thank you for coming and being born of a virgin. Thank you for coming and living that perfect life. Thank you for taking that sin of mine on the cross. Thank you. Thank you for all these things and more. Help us to grasp these things and to understand them and to appreciate them more and more as they grow precious to us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love and compassion. Thank you that you save lost sinners like us. Father, we praise you, we glorify you, and we exalt in who you are. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen.